How's everyone doing? All right. Glad, glad you're here. Good to see you. Uh, we have been in a conversation about uh, talking to God, or you may know it as prayer. Uh, Jesus not only modeled this uh, in his life, but he had things to say about it. He had things to say about prayer. And of all the things Jesus did, uh, he healed the blind. He made the cripple walk. He even brought the dead back to life, according to the Gospels. Um, but his disciples did not ask him, ask them to teach them how to heal people or teach them how to walk on water, which would have been pretty up high on my list. Uh, when his disciples asked him to specifically teach them something, it was teach us to pray. Apparently, there was something about how Jesus talked to God that stood in stark contrast with the disciples' understanding of prayer, and it was clearly attracted to them. So of all the things they could have asked him, they said, teach us to pray. So Jesus gives them and us uh, what we know today as, as the Lord's Prayer. And we've been walking through it uh, pretty slowly, actually, uh, sitting with it and what we've been calling sitting with the guiding realities uh, that Jesus lays out. And it's been good. It's been good for me. I don't know. Maybe you've been bored, but it's been good for me. But if you're just joining us, um, I'd encourage you to go back and listen because I just can't catch you up completely. He's with me. Um, but maybe the fundamental thing that has been said up until this point is this. Uh, your prayer life, or lack thereof, will be directly tied to what you really believe about God, what you really believe God is like. So one of the great claims of Christianity is that if we want to know what God is like, um, most explicitly, uh, the, the clearest place to see what God is like is in Jesus. That's one of the greatest claims of Christianity amongst other religions, right? He, that Jesus came to perfectly image God to us, to reveal what God's really like, right? And when he, when he said, Jesus said, when you look at me, you see the Father. So according to Jesus himself, out of his own mouth, uh, he is the image of God, perfectly, you know, right? clearly. And so when we go to pray, our mind, and he said, when we go to pray, our mind should first and foremost be filled with who we think God is, who we are praying to, right? So the first half of the prayer, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, the first half of the prayer is concerning the character and nature of God, Father, Holy, and King. We've gone over this at length, right? Um, so if that is who God is, if God is a father who loves us deeply, holy, he's near to us, right? If we take Jesus seriously about what he says, then prayer can become a very natural thing to us because according to Jesus, God loves you like a father. That's what he's like. <laughs> he's beautiful, right? He pursues you. He's near to you, right? His rule and reign brings and sustains life, right? And the kind of life that really can only be described as eternal life. It's how they described it, right? It overflows. It's, it's life so strong that it never ends, right? That's the kind of God he is. And if all that's true about him, then it really becomes easy, I dare I say, desirable to talk to him, right? I, mean, I don't want to step on any toes if you think Christian duty should hurt, but I think prayer can even be enjoyable. Like, I might delightful, maybe, right? So I think uh, if we're actually praying, right, you might want to jump up and shout for joy. I don't know if you have a Christianity like that, but it's what we seem to see in the Bible. So let's read it together. This is what we've been doing every week. We've been reading the Lord's Prayer together, but I want to up the ante today because I can tell you need a little help, right? So we're going to stand up. Come on, do it. You got this. Come on, let's stand up. Let's read God's Word together. 
loud and proud. All of you are so annoyed right now. Here we go. All right, Matthew 6. Let's read it. You ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You can have a seat. Good job. You did, you did good. <laughs> so, so last week, um, the prayer shifted. Uh, it, it, it shifts to a place that many of us are maybe uh, more familiar with when it comes to prayer, which is bringing our needs to God. That's how the prayer shifted last week. Give us this day our daily bread, right? And what R Richard Foster calls, it shifts to what he calls simple prayer, which is the most common type of prayer in the Bible, which is just bringing your request to the Lord. Jesus seems to think God cares about preserving and protecting and sustaining your life. And he invites you to engage with God about the seemingly unspiritual daily monotony of your daily existence. Don't over-spiritualize prayer, guys. It really is talking to God about what's going on in your life. Daily bread, he taught us to pray. Daily sustenance, the things you need to survive. Jesus said, talk to God about those things, right? And right after teaching um, to ask God for physical means of survival, daily bread, he teaches us to ask God for spiritual means of survival, which is this, first and foremost, forgiveness. That is the means by which your spirit may come alive. And it's the only means. Forgiveness, grace, mercy. It is spiritual sustenance. Jesus teaches us to pray, to acknowledge, not simply my brokenness, that's there, but the brokenness of the entire world. If you look at it, it's plural, isn't it? Forgive us our debts. This is a big deal. We're gonna dig into this. My sins. Your sins, God have mercy on all of us. Jesus taught us to pray this, y'all. This has massive implications that I hope you at least get some of by the time you leave here. He said, pray, forgive us. Lord have mercy is a prayer we see routinely in the gospels. It's a prayer we see that is most often shouted from, from the top of their lungs towards Jesus. We see it over and over again in Jesus's ministry. People tracking him down, shouting at the top of their lungs, Lord, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy. Matthew 20 is an example of this. Two blind men shouting as loud as they can. Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd says, shh, quit. You are making a scene. You are embarrassing yourself. And they cry out all the more. They just dig into it, right? The word is crazo, from where we get crazy. They are screaming at the top of their lungs, right? Something inside them had convinced them that this man was a solution to the, the errors and the sins and the defects of their position. And they pursued him, even though people said, you are, you're making a fool out of yourself. You need to hush. They cried out all the more. Shrieking would be a better word. They shrieked at the top of their lungs. Son of David, have mercy on me. Losing their minds. They're asking, mercy, mercy. Withhold punishment, Lord. 
withhold punishment from me. Don't give me what I deserve. Another word might be, and it's more demeaning, but more accurate, pity. Jesus, have pity on me. See my position. Relieve my pain. And in Jesus' prayer, in Jesus' prayer, it's actually self-inflicted pain. It's debt. I've accrued something at my own hand, and Lord, will you relieve me of this self-inflicted position that I find myself? Debt, something that you do, isn't it? And he says, ask God to forgive in the positions of your life where you have gotten yourself backwards, where you've made things crooked. Jesus says, when you pray, this is massive, y'all. When you pray, bring to him, not just your needs, huh? not, not just your moral achievements, right? Like the guy that stands and prays, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that riffraff, right? When you pray, bring to him, not just your needs, but your sins. The very thing that we hide from God and others Jesus says, talk about it to God. Some of you in this room do not pray right now because of the sins in your own heart and life. And you say, he won't hear me, right? You don't know the things that I've done, Chris, right? Skeletons under the porch. God doesn't listen to people like me. And what does Jesus say to you? The very thing you're pointing out as to why you don't pray, he says, bring that to God. Start with that, with your brokenness. This is the content of Christian prayer. Is this liberating to anybody else in this room? Am I the only person that's breathing a breath of relief because Jesus acknowledges the fact that we mess up? And he says, don't hide it. Don't run from God. Bring it to him. Forgive me, God. Have mercy on me. I've had, listen, can I be honest? I got the mic, all right? I'm a professional Christian, all right? I have had seasons of my life where the only prayer I could utter out of my lips that felt honest were, Lord, have mercy. Prolonged seasons, y'all. I'm not praying for anyone else in those seasons, all right? I want, I want any other, I want to have mercy. Only prayer I could get out of my lips. This is the only prayer that felt honest. I've had prolonged seasons where that's all I could get. I've had times where the darkness crushes down on me and fear and anxiety and my own sin was pushing down on my back so hard that the only prayer I could utter whisper even was, Lord, have mercy. God, forgive. I don't know what's going on in my life, man. I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't, I feel like blocked out of heaven. You're not there. Where are you? That's a prayer of the Bible, y'all. Some of y'all need to bring that kind of honesty. You need to get off the religious thing. Bring that kind of honesty to God and see what happens in your heart and life. Where are you? A prayer of the Bible is, why have you forsaken me? We need to bring these areas of our hearts and lives before the Lord instead of hiding them and acting like everything's fine. And Jesus gives us that permission in this prayer, y'all. He says, pray routinely. It was a daily ex. But Jesus expects his disciples to do this daily, y'all. Pray it daily. Forgive me. Seasons where you feel incapacitated by your own weakness and insecurities, Jesus says, bring it to him, right? Like, where you have a desire to walk straight, but you feel the weight of your own depravity bending your back over, he says, bring it to me, right? The weight of your own sin, the weight of maybe some crushing circumstance. Look, some of us are there right now, y'all. We got crushing circumstances in our life. 
right, that are bearing down on us, right? And in those moments, you bringing that to the Lord, you bringing your weakness to God is something apparently that Jesus desires, that he, or he wouldn't taught us to pray this, right? Can I just say, I've had prolonged seasons of trying to follow God where all I could pray honestly was, Lord, have mercy. God, please forgive, right? And if you might be in a season like that, I just, I just want to comfort your heart today, right? Because apparently Jesus knows exactly where you're at. And we have a prayer that we can pray no matter where we come from, right? It, this prayer levels the entire playing field of Christianity, right? It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a pimp. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you sell church pews or drugs, right? This is a prayer that all of us can honestly say from the bottom of our hearts. Every single one of us can pray this with honesty. God, forgive me. Have mercy. Have mercy on my children. Have mercy on my land. Have mercy on our world, right? I've heard people ridicule this prayer. I've heard people say, in some sort of kind of assumed theological self-righteousness, you shouldn't keep praying for forgiveness because God's already forgiven you in Christ. You ever heard that? Yeah? And I get it. I get it. I believe that. God has forgiven you in Christ. The only problem with that's the Bible, right? Because Jesus taught you to pray, presumably daily, God, forgive me. Forgive my debt. I don't know about you. This is just very liberating. I grew up in church, right? And where the unspoken assumption is often have it together <laughs> or scoot over, right? Right? With the unspoken, I mean, if anyone grew up in church with the unspoken assumption is like, mistakes aren't tolerated, bro. Like, don't bring your doubts. Don't bring, we don't talk about that stuff in small group, okay? We have, we have you know, you can go to a different group and go to CR for that, right? Go, go to a different group for that, right? Right? But here, we got it together. In fact, you know, in our, in our land, you know, most people go to church to prove they have it together. That's why they don't go to church, you know, because I'm a mess up. I'm not going to go to church. Well, I got it together, so I'm showing with my family at the church, you know? Oh, is that? No. Okay. All right. Too honest? All right. And here Jesus is saying, as a part of your daily praying, a legitimate and necessary prayer for the disciple of Jesus is, God, forgive me. This bears light on some ideas, y'all, that have, um, uh, you know, they're around in Christian circles that some Christians subscribe to, uh, specifically that you can attain sinless perfection in this life. This bears some light on that, doesn't it? It seems Jesus understands our weakness. And he knows that our impoverished hearts will over and over again need to ask and receive mercy daily from God. Look at me. He, he knows it's hard. Like, breathe. He knows it's hard. <laughs> he knows you're going to fail. Right? Aren't we all just trying to walk right? I mean, aren't we all just try, trying to fight the fight, sometimes winning, sometimes losing, sometimes getting beat black and blue? just from the normal daily grind, like he knows, right? And Jesus apparently does not look down at you with disdain because you can't get it together. He says, bring it to the Lord, right? He knows you're gonna blow it over and over again and he teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. Keep, he's really saying, keep short accounts with God, man. Like don't let too much time, don't let too much water get under the bridge before coming clean about what's going on in your heart and life, right? Thus he teaches us to pray when we pray, don't ignore your sins. Don't ignore them. Don't brush them under the rug. Bring it to the Lord. The very things we'd like to hide. He says, bring it to me. We only hurt ourselves, y'all. 
when we refuse to acknowledge the broken areas of our lives. And our great confidence, and our great confidence as Christians, is that our request will be met by him whose mercies are new every morning. At least that's what Lamentations 3 says. So what's really important about this, and I want to kind of shift gears now, is uh, really important about this prayer is for us to see that Jesus is connecting your receiving forgiveness with your extending forgiveness. Did you catch that? Jesus says there is a clear connection between God forgiving you and you forgiving others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Some translations may say transgressions or sins, but I really like the ESV debt because we all know how debt works in our country, don't we? We're up to our eyeballs in debt, right? Smiling all the time, up to our eyeballs in debt. We know how debt works. It's something you owe someone rightly. It's, it's justice. It's legality. Debt is language of which either you owe someone or they owe you. It's legitimate, right? Debt maintains equality in our economy, doesn't it? Yeah, you, you, I've given you money. Now you've got to give it back to me. And Jesus is saying, because God has foot the bill, as it were, because he's paid your debt, now you have to, have to release others from their debts. You have to release others from the things they've done against you. And if you don't, God won't forgive you. Now, this was utterly shocking to them, as shocked as maybe you feel right now. So much so that Jesus had to circle back around to it after the prayer. Did you see that? In in Matthew 6, 14, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we dug into this really hard about a month ago or so. And as difficult as it is for us, uh, you know, kind of gospel-preaching, grace-oriented people as we are, you know, we, we say God's love covers everything, and that's true, right? His grace is sufficient, and that is true. His mercies are new every morning. Yes and amen. That's what we get in here to get excited about. And yet... There's no getting around this in Scripture. Over and over and over again, you will see Jesus saying, if you do not forgive, it seems to be the one thing that you can do to remove yourself out from underneath the waterfall of God's love and forgiveness is withhold forgiveness from other people. It's it's indisputable in Scripture, y'all. There's no getting around it. It throws a monkey wrench in my theology just as much as it does yours, but it's there. He says that if you do not forgive you will not be forgiven. If you refuse to extend grace, grace will not be extended to you, right? Some of us would do well to park on this, right? We need to sit with Matthew 18 in the parable of the unmerciful servant, another long parable where Jesus talks about this, right? We live in a day where contempt and condemnation of others are routinely affirmed and justified. Do we not? Like, can you not feel a spirit of unforgiveness just rampant in our culture? I mean, unforgiveness, y'all, is applauded in our society, right? Unforgiveness, I'm confident, is gripping some of our hearts even as we sit here. If you bring up that thing, that person, that instant, and your blood starts to boil... And then your friends come alongside you and say, yeah, that was dirty. They deserve contempt. And they do. They do. And yet Jesus says, if you are not the kind of person who extends forgiveness to even that person, I'm not going to extend forgiveness to you. This is startling. (laughs) 
It throws a wrench in my theology. Jesus says in no uncertain terms, if you do not forgive, you'll not be forgiven. And we should note here, forgiveness does not excuse or ignore evil done against you. In fact, it does the opposite. It actually addresses it. It calls it what it is, wrong, evil, betrayal, wicked. Forgiveness simply means that they no longer owe you, right? That you suffer it. That's what forgiveness means. Someone has to suffer, guys, in forgiveness. It doesn't just disappear. You suffer the wrong. That's what forgiveness means. That you take the injustice and you quiet your mouth, just like, guess who? The Lamb of God, who is silent before his accusers. You absorb it. That's forgiveness. It doesn't just disappear. It's injustice, it's evil, and it's wrong. And you stay your hand of vengeance. You do what the psalmist says in moments like that. You wait on the Lord and let him establish your justice. Forgiveness is it's nothing to shake. You know, It's hard. It's hard business, right? It means they don't owe you. And when we begin to put our little story in God's bigger story, forgiveness becomes easier and easier, right? And it's really what makes you a Christian, if we're honest. Forgiveness, isn't it? Isn't that actually what makes us followers of Jesus? Now, I want to build on something we said last week. Daily bread, forgiveness, and even where we're going next time, uh, protecting from evil, are all examples of things we know God already wants to do. Let me prove it to you. He's called in the Old Testament Jehovah Jireh. You know what that means? The Lord, our provider. He longs to provide for you. We already know that. The psalmist says he takes our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's what we sang today, right? James tells us that God never will tempt you with evil. All these things God already longs to do. And yet, Jesus still says, ask. Now, we talked about this a little bit. And the first reason we said last week was, in the asking, you recognize that God alone provides. He alone forgives. He alone sustains, right? We ask because in the asking, we acknowledge our limitations and his ability to give. That's what we said last week. But now... I want to add on this. Why does he teach us to ask? I think there's another reason, maybe a greater reason to engage in this verbalizing things that we know God already longs to do. And it's this, number two, ready? So the first reason, it acknowledges our limitation. The second reason, this is what we're going to talk about the rest of our time together, right? God, why, do we, why does he say ask when he, when he already knows, and we already know he, already, he wants to provide these things. God wants to share his glory with you and to do that. He shares his work with you. That's why he teaches us to ask. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. He, God, is inviting you into his purposes in the earth. He shows us what he's doing, and then he says, now do this with me. Represent me in the earth. Okay, here we go. Stay with me. Since day one, here we go. Genesis 1. God seemed intent on inviting humans, humanity, to partner with him in his work in creation. So here's how. In Genesis 1, God creates the earth, and he's the one who rules and reigns, right? That has, that's the Genesis, reigns perfectly in Eden. He's the ruler, he's the reigner, right? <laughs> reigner. Um, yet what does he invite Adam and Eve to do? To rule and reign with him. He gives them, in Genesis, go read it. In Genesis, he gives them dominion. Over the animals, all the earth. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the bird, fish, birds, livestock, over all the earth. So 
What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Well, in some ways, it means that he shares with us his very responsibility, his very mission in the earth. The Imago Dei, the image of God, comes with it a mandate and responsibility. He created, and he says, now you go create. Go create other little people, right? He brought order to chaos, and he said, now you go do that in the earth. Go cultivate the land right? He shares with us in his purposes. The Imago Dei effectively means image me to the earth. Represent me, rule in my place as a priest, as a king, cultivate, bring order, create other little people. I mean, you think about it, that's a crazy thing, right? Like God created you and then he's like, now you go create other people. Like birth, it's crazy, right? (laughs) He says, rule in my place, the Imago Dei, rule and reign. And of course, Adam and Eve and humanity, they fail, don't they? They fail to image God to creation. They fail to rule and reign as he would have ruled and reigned because they choose their own way. They choose to define good and evil for themselves. We fail to symbol God. You're a symbol of God. This is insane. This is stuff. This is crazy, heady stuff. Imago Dei, image, an image of God, right? You, You are to be a symbol of God to the earth. Is anyone struggling with this? Is it? I don't feel like I'm... And this story goes on. Okay, here we go. God, this is so fascinating. I, I'm, it's, it might be like a long rabbit trail, but I, this is so fascinating. God, as a concession, as a concession, institutes the priesthood in the Old Testament, in Exodus. Do you know what the priesthood were supposed to do? You know what? To represent God, to make atonement for sins. Only God can do that. And yet the priests are told to do it. God tells the priests, image me to my people. Feed my sheep, right? God calls them shepherds, right? Feed, provide for them like I provide for them. Pursue them like I pursue them. That's what the priest did, right? And he invites the priest into this collaborate effort with him. So what's so interesting about the priesthood, this is like maybe if you're not a Bible nerd, you're already checked out, but this is so interesting. That role was to represent God. The very first instructions given about the priesthood is given when Moses goes up the mountain in Exodus 23, I think it is. I think I have it written down somewhere. And the very first instruction God gives Moses about the priesthood, um, and Aaron, remember, is, is the first priest, the tribe of Levi, if you, you know, grew up in church and you maybe remember the felt board. Um, Moses, I'm sorry, God gives Moses what, it all has a point, God gives Moses what the priests are supposed to wear, okay? So if you read Exodus 28, you read the description, it is fascinating. The priest literally would have been glowing, almost luminous, right? If you read the description, the colors are royal colors. There's bands of gold. There's rows and rows and rows of jewels. It just goes on and on. Emeralds, amethysts, sapphires, diamonds, onyx stones are all supposed to be embedded in the priestly garb, right? And he is supposed to wear it. It goes on and on. And it would have been awe-inspiring to see this. They would have literally been glowing, sparkling in the light, right? They would have been uh, almost luminous. And it's all getting at that the priests are supposed to image God and extend his mercy to the people. And it would have been fascinating, right? So Moses, (laughs) as he's getting these instructions of what they're supposed to look like, how the priests are supposed to represent God and image God to the people, how they're supposed to extend his mercy, guess what the first priest is doing in the valley? Melting gold to make another image of God, a golden calf. This is so fascinating. God says, you are to image me to the world. 
and he is making a false image and worshiping it instead. And it gets even better, right? So, I mean, so instead of representing God like a preacher is supposed to do, he makes a calf and bows before it, right? And as Moses goes back to God, so remember he comes down and you guys see the old thing, and he breaks the stones and he has to go like that, right? So when he goes back up to God, he, he, we didn't read this last week, but we did, we did read some from Exodus 32. When he goes back up, he says to the people, perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. What's that the role of in the Bible? Priests. And when he goes up, he actually offers his own life for the people in Exodus 32. And he, in that moment, Moses begins to fulfill the role that the priests were supposed to fulfill. And it's not long after this that Moses begins to glow, to luminous, right? Is anyone else blown away by this? The Bible is such a fascinating book. It's just me. His, and it's not, his, it's not the jewels that are glowing. It's his face. And it fades. Wow. So, so Tim Mackey, scholar, a biblical scholar, says, from the beginning, the biblical authors want, to know, want you to know that the priesthood was doomed to fail. And yet when you or I step in the gap and pray for others, when we ask for God's mercy, not just for us, but for others, we begin to image God to the world in supernatural ways. We actually begin to partner with him. And throughout the Bible, we have all these figures that seem to be the guy that was going to image God to the Israelites, right? Moses, Abraham, and all of them blow it, right? David, he, like, he's the guy. He was the anointed one. And he blows it, like in conspiracy and murder and adultery, right? And he, he, he has high moments and he has low moments. They all, they all fail, right? And then Jesus comes on the scene. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, guess what he does? He begins to glow. Isn't that fascinating? He literally becomes white as lightning. And the text says, bright as the sun. So bright, the guys with him hit the deck, right? They fall on their, they're terrified. And the connection between Jesus glowing on the mountain of transfiguration and Moses stepping into a place of intercession for his people should not be missed. God is saying, when you begin to ask for mercy, when you step into the place of interceder, beseeching God for mercy, offering your own life, right? You begin to image him like no other, right? And Jesus is a better priest than any that have ever come before, right? Jesus does what Moses couldn't do. He's a better Moses. He's a better liberator. He's a better king than David, right? And the author of Hebrews picks up on this, right? And he drills down into this. Here's Hebrews says this, but he holds his priesthood, Jesus, permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save the uttermost, save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. Jesus images God perfectly to us. And what does he do? He comes to extend what? Mercy, to intercede, to forgive. In this prayer, forgive us our debts, right? Not just mine, our debts. Jesus is inviting you into his priestly role to share his work of extending mercy to the earth. Look, you can't, you can't save anyone, right? But you better believe you can take a position of forgiveness or judgment towards others. That is your prerogative, right? You get to choose whether or not you will sit in judgment over others or whether you will be an avenue by which Jesus extends his forgiveness to the world. It's your choice. You get to choose that, right? And Jesus is inviting you to be a part of his work in the earth by praying this prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, forgive, uh, who are indebted to us. Look, this is the mandate of the church, y'all. 
What do you think it means that we're called the body of Christ? We are fulfilling this mission in the earth. It's what we're called to, to cry out day and night for the mercy of God, to extend the very forgiveness of God to the ends of the earth. It's what we do when we pray. And if we can take this as our personal mission in life, what begins to happen? Well, you begin to glow. (laughs) You begin to image God to all around you. All around you, people who are uh, are just championing condemnation and contempt and judgment. Think of the stark contrast if you begin to be a person who extends forgiveness and mercy instead. Think of how much you would stand out on social media. <laughs> I mean, really, you'd just be, right? I wouldn't know what to do with you. Yeah? What if we became the kind of people that when we walked into the room, our radar wasn't up for other people's sins, but rather was up for the mercy of God? What would that look like in your life, in your family, in your workplace? If instead of pointing out other sins, like it is so easy to do and that we're all guilty of, we were the kind of people who extended the very forgiveness of God to those who don't deserve it. What would that look like, right? Not just to pray for it, y'all. Jesus doesn't just say pray for it. He does, but then it's like what? As we forgive, right? There is action in this prayer. Now, y'all just have to listen to this because it it, it gets better. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through you. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It says it right there. If you're a Christian, God has given me and you the ministry of reconciliation to be ambassadors of his mercy. God wants to use your everyday lives as a living appeal to the earth. To what? Be reconciled to God. Us, me and you, sinful, me and you with our wayward, distracted hearts, right? Trying but failing, me and you. Apparently, God seems to think his power is enough that he can, if you'll let you, if you will let him transform you to be an actual vessel of his grace and mercy to those who live around, to change you from an object of wrath to a vessel of honor, or a scripture would say, a jar of clay, right? We can become, y'all, if we will get behind this whole forgiveness thing. I see your skepticism, (laughs) We can become, if we will get behind the forgiveness of God, little causeways, little avenues of his grace, that that his grace now extends further in the desert than it did earlier, right? You can become a, a little causeway of the forgiveness of God in your workplace, in your families, in your neighborhood, right? And if no one is willing to represent God and allow his love to enter, right, to be a vessel of his forgiveness and extend it to the undeserving, how can God get his arms around the world? How can God get his arms around your neighbor and your, I mean, isn't that the whole thing? The body of Christ? Do you guys see how it's connected? How this is our mandate as the church to be extensions of this? So let me just read this to you, then we'll wrap it up. 2 Corinthians 3 says this, and I'm I'm skipping around. 
Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, here it is. If the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, which passed, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? Do you see the connection? Do you see what we're being called into, right? And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. To, to another. For this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory. I mean, just sit on that sentence for a year, okay? Uh, To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Okay. Anyone? Did I connect the dots? Okay. How can we do this, y'all? How can we represent a father overflowing with love and forgiveness if we ourselves are full of unforgiveness and bitterness and contempt and looking down on others, right? You are not only forfeiting being on mission with God and having a purpose, but you are forfeiting the very reason you were created to image God to the earth. And according to this, one of the ways you image God to the earth is by praying for and extending his mercy to others. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. There's no more clear way in which we partner with God in his work. The New Testament writers knew this when they said, you are a royal priesthood, priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, right? How do, how do we proclaim his excellencies? What is the glory of God? It's the cross the place where sin is absorbed. It's the place where the righteous suffer for the unrighteous. And we may not truly know the power of God's forgiveness until we ourselves are willing to extend that forgiveness to others. Let me say that one more time. You've not heard anything else. You may not know the power of God's forgiveness until you are willing to extend that forgiveness to others. Will you be the kind of person who brings God's mercy into a room Or will you be the kind of person who's repetitively and continually pointing other sins out? Lord, have mercy. God, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Let's stand and pray.